readings today are from Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, chapter 7, 28 through 29. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went upon the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. going to mess up the music team stuff for a second. Um, thanks for coming. Good to see you guys again. Uh, if I have not seen you yet, uh, happy 2018. Uh, magical year. So uh, I'm excited to be back. I hope you guys have settled in by now. Um, you know, I guess the first full week of school and even the partial week last week was snow. We, we canceled David's for like the second time in history or whatever, right? Which is pretty impressive. So you guys are making history, even even you don't know it. So um, as I awkwardly try to, my Bible's upside down. This is awesome. Doing well so far. Like so out of practice. This is just a rust central. Um, anyway, um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sid Druin, and I promise I do this for a living. Uh, it doesn't look like it right now. <laughs> this is really bad. Okay. So um, I'm the campus ministry with Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists for you all and for this campus. And really kind of what we're trying to do here in this space, but also throughout the weeks uh, of the semester and uh, the weekends is just really trying to create a community that reflects the campus where anyone from any scene can feel comfortable on campus and from anyone from any personal background can feel welcomed and comfortable and a part of our community. Um, and that includes where you are with Jesus and Christianity. And so whether you call yourself a believer, or you call yourself a spiritual skeptic, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, um, or maybe those terms bother you and you'd say none of the above, or um, all of the above, or um, somewhere in between that feels more squishy, that's fine. Um, we're glad to have you, and we really want you to feel welcome. So anyway... If you're new, especially, uh, this is your first large group, um, which is what we're doing right here, right now, or your first time in RUF, anything, thanks especially for taking that risk and that time. I really do appreciate it. Um, I also want to welcome Hudson and uh, the Belk family. Uh, is it, who's back there, Bailey? Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Hudson's a friend of mine. He also comes from North Cross Church, and he brought the food, so make sure to thank him afterwards. Oh, look, applause already. You got it already. You got applause. <laughs> what a win. Um, so he's here to love you on behalf of the church, um, so it's really cool that he could be here with us. So I'm really afraid I'm just going to step on Royce's guitar, so I'm going to put back for the sake of his instrument. Okay. So this semester in large group, we are changing gears slightly if you were with us last semester, um, and we're going to look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
So Jesus is Sermon on the Mount. This is likely the most well-known and most often quoted section of the Bible. Okay, I, I heard somewhere recently, which is dangerous because I have no real statistical backing for this, but can I get away with that? Sure. Um, so I heard somewhere recently that judge not lest you be judged has overtaken for God's love the world in the most cited biblical verse in all of the Bible and American Christianity. So welcome. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what we're looking at. We'll get there eventually. The Sermon on the Mount is also likely the most famous speech by the most famous person in the history of the world, who is Jesus, and it's in the most famous book in the world, the Bible. And so aside from all the worldwide world historical fanfare, I'd like to suggest two reasons why we're going to look at this book this semester, and I'm going to try to be brief, but you know how it goes. Okay, so first, the first reason is RUF and Davidson specific. Last semester, we studied the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, which the Ruth, by the way, is set in the time period of the book of Judges. And Judges was so exciting at a distance, but we waited in, it became extremely frightening and terrifying. Close up, you know, we had bathroom-based assassinations. We had temple, uh, we had tent pegs to the temple killings. Um, We had child sacrifice. We had a sex-addicted, savage, strong man named Samson. And those were just the heroes, not to mention the villains, okay? And in the midst of that, there's this repeated refrain that we didn't really look at, but especially towards the end of Judges, that says over and over and over again, in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so in the swirl of that chaos that is caused by that kind of rampant lack of central authority or whatever, the, the book of Ruth offered this hope of a king, right? Ruth means Boaz. There's some circumstances we investigated. They have a son, um, and then eventually they have a great-grandson whose name is King David. And King David becomes this kind of figure, a foreshadowing figure, an ancestor of King Jesus. And King Jesus came to the earth to create a kingdom, a countercultural uh, culture. Can I say that? Countercultural culture? <laughs> but centered on uh, reversing wrongs and rescuing human beings from themselves. So in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount is sort of the fulfillment of the book of Judges and the books of Ruth, okay? And so it's exciting to look at them back to back, sort of. And if you weren't here last semester, don't worry about it, okay? Just fun. That's added addition. Okay, so Sermon on the Mount is a description of this culture that King Jesus inaugurates or starts with his ministry in this speech. Okay, the second reason we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount is maybe a little bit more accessible, a little less sort of long view of history of the Bible. I just really feel like the Sermon on the Mount is essential Christian reading. Can I put that out there? I think historically it has always been central to the understanding of what it means to be a Christian. No matter what age, no matter what century, people have looked to this section of scripture to say, what should I do? Who should I be? What am I about? What is Christianity about? What are they about? So the Sermon on the Mount is for the been there and done that Christians, okay? So what do I mean by that? Those of you who are, I'm going to use a metaphor here, of course. Those of you who are intimately familiar with the house of Christianity, okay? You've been there, you've done that. You're fluffing the pillows each morning while you make your bed, okay? You're straightening the pictures that you've hung in your Christian room. You're buying new paint and new furniture because you want to make the space more yours, 
Okay, you're inhabiting this place. But maybe you still find yourself, you know, even while you're holding the paint samples in your hand, wandering towards the nearest exit. Okay, maybe you find yourself from time to time, especially at Davidson, um, kind of somehow standing at the door or the window just to feel the outside air. Because this Christian air can feel stuffy sometimes. And the grass out there looks so green. The Sermon on the Mount is for you. And the Sermon on the Mount is it for you in your certainty and in your doubts. Okay? Also, then there are those of you here who are just here to visit. Someone, gra- someone grabbed you. You're here. This is like the Monopoly space. You're not in jail. You're just visiting. Okay, so that's fine. Uh, or you're here to explore Christianity and see what Christianity is about. And that's awesome, too. So I want to picture you the, the house of Christianity. You're standing at a distance from the house. Maybe you're across the lawn. Your arms are crossed. You're taking in the view from the front fence. Okay? And then, but maybe sometimes, despite yourself or because of kind of feeling your heart's desires, you find yourself wandering towards the window panes. And all of a sudden, you kind of look closer and closer until your nose is pressed against the glass and your breath starts to fog the view inside. Because Christianity can feel so different and can feel so comforting. And really what I want to say is the Sermon on the Mount is a way for you in your doubts and your longings okay, to understand what's going on. Does that make sense? So really, basically, I'm trying to paint this picture of like spectrum, no matter where you are, I hope that this will be really edifying and important and helpful uh, to understanding Christianity uh, from the inside, from the outside, or somewhere in between. Okay? So let me do this. I'm done with my explanation, introduction, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started looking last at the big picture and more at the beginning and the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's pray. Father, um, I really appreciate these students being here. I appreciate their time, and I know you do. I know you appreciate each and every one of them, no matter where they are with Christianity. And I pray that you would just really work in this room, that you'd work in this space, that you'd work through my words, and that you would um, change us no matter where we are. I pray that you would move in us, that you would take what we brought in, and you wouldn't let us stuff it deep inside, but you would let us to hold it out to the light of your, of your truth and of your love and of your patience, and that you would help us to, to, to leave this room with everything that we came in with, and that we would, but we would leave differently, that you, we would have met you, that Jesus, we would have sat at your feet and we would have been astonished like this crowd. I pray that you would be high and lifted up, Jesus, and that you would be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. That's our prayer, and only you could do that. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. So this December, I did something relatively rare, and I went to the movies, and I saw a movie called Lady Bird. Anybody see Lady Bird? Okay. Uh, one, like one person. It's really good. We got, <laughs> thank you. Hopefully by the end of this sermon, I'll accomplish one thing, which is to get you to go watch that movie. So that's really good. Okay. So Lady Bird is a movie about uh, a girl, Christine, who's in high school, who's trying to kind of figure out who she is. Uh, Lady Bird, by the way, is the, t- is the name that she gives herself and then insists on being called. So Christine goes to Lady Bird. <laughs> That's what she wants to be called. But the movie is also about Christine slash Lady Bird's difficult yet significant relationship with her mom. It's about how our parents shape us as we grow up, as we grow into someone. 
And there's this scene at the very beginning of the movie that epitomizes all the difficulty and all the significance of what our parents mean to us, okay? And it goes something like this. The mother and the daughter are driving back from college visits, um, local college visits in California. They're based in Sacramento. And I mean, I imagine most of you can experience this or are familiar with this. Uh, And then they're actually listening to a book on tape, um, John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Okay, maybe it's on CD. And the narrator's voice slowly, kind of sweetly reads the last few lines of the book, and then the camera pans over to the McPherson mother and daughter, and they're both kind of quietly weeping in their chairs. The mom's driving, the, the daughter's in the, in the shotgun, and they're quietly crying. But almost immediately after this tender, significant moment, they begin to fiercely argue about whether Christine, Lady Bird, can actually go to college outside of California. And this is how it goes. Lady Bird shouts, I want to go where culture is, like New York, or at least Connecticut, or New Hampshire, where writers live in the woods, okay? (laughs) But her mother, Marion, interrupts this monologue by kind of muttering all along, how in the world did I raise such a snob? You couldn't get into those schools anyway. Lady Berg is shocked. She goes, Mom! And then Marion continues, right? "You You couldn't even pass your driver's test. And then Lady Bird interrupts, because you wouldn't let me practice enough. Okay, And as the argument escalates on both sides, Marion ends one of her like comments in the argument by calling her daughter uh, Christine. And Christine loses it. She responds by shouting, my name is Ladybird. Okay, And Ma- Marion firmly says, her mom firmly says, well, actually it's not, and it's ridiculous. Your name is Christine. <laughs> All the while, Christine slash Ladybird shouts, Call me Ladybird like you said you would. Okay? Then Marion insists in a clearly angry tone, the mom, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College, then to jail, then back to City College. (laughs) And then you learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything for. And then she's interrupted because Ladybird jumps out of the moving car and the mother screams. And then the next scene you see in the movie is Lady Bird writing the word, the, her name, Lady Bird, on her pink arm cast. Okay. So I think a, this opening scene captures a lot. Okay, it's extremely dramatic, obviously. Uh, I always say this because I'm always careful, but many of us, most of us, all of us, have never leapt from a moving car uh, to escape a parent comment. But if we're honest, I think most of us, many of us, all of us, have felt the desire to leave at any cost from, one, from a parent's tired of advice, right? The water falls over, rushing over you, and you're like, I can't breathe. You're, check, you're checking the child locks. Anyway, um, I know that we all have unique and very different relationships with our parents. I don't want to generalize here uh, about how you know, your parents are bad parents. After all, I'm a parent. Would that be fair? No, because I like myself and I like my children. I want my children to like me. Okay, but I also don't want to assume too much about how you argue with your mom in the privacy of her car. Okay, however, all that said, all those qualifications noted, I do mean to suggest that you and I are profoundly shaped by our parents and their good intentions for us. Okay? For instance, whether you grew up Christian or not, our parents' tone and words over our lives guide the way that we read sections of the Bible like Sermon on the Mount. Okay? 
I'm just going to speak for myself. I did not grow up reading the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't grow up Christian. And when I became Christian, ever since, whenever I read these words in these chapters, 5 through 7 of Matthew, I catch myself hearing them more as good advice that I should really just follow than anything else. Right? I hear them as good advice, exacting good advice that I should just follow and get better and do better. And look, I'm all for trying to love your enemies, giving to the needy without taking credit. Those certainly are not going to hurt your life, okay, in, I think, really important ways. In fact, it'll make them better. But doing these things as mere self-improvement is an exercise in missing Jesus' points. Okay, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus is saying something quite different. If it's just two more chapters in a life filled with more good advice, okay, uh, you know, like, you know, your mom on the cell phone across campus. Talk to your professor before you turn in the paper. I'm sure he'll have good comments. Or, you know, or the other one that's like, apply for internships now, not in February or March. You know, that sort of thing that you have kind of in your head from your parents, maybe. Okay? And again, well-meaning. I'm not trying to get on that. But if Jesus' words are just one more piece of good advice to us, we're going to either think foolishly that we could, we've got it and we can do it, and we're going to assume that anyone who does not do the things that we're about to study for the semester is really just um, the worst. And they should just try a little bit harder or at all. Okay, on the other hand, we'll take Jesus' commandments very seriously. We'll try to do them, see how deep they go. We'll miserably fail at them. And then, guess what we'll do? We'll pull ourselves together with a speech about getting better. Or we'll just get bitter and check out. That's kind of our alternatives if we see this as more good advice. Okay, so what if the Sermon on the Mount included but then extended past or beyond good advice? What if commentators like Dan Doriani are actually right? What if the Sermon on the Mount does not command people to do this or do that, to enter into Jesus' presence, or to stay in his good graces? What if the Sermon on the Mount actually is describing what it looks like to live with Jesus in this world? What if the Sermon on the Mount is probing our characters, asking us questions about who we are and who we are and want to be? What if the Sermon on the Mount is actually inviting us to see the world in a new way, as Jesus sees the world, to see the world in our lives with a kind of spiritual imagination? So in a sentence, which of course will be long. Um, Our selections from Matthew chapters 4 and 5 and 7, or sorry, yes, 7, the Sermon on the Mount, basically, I'm kind of putting these together to primarily show us this evening how to live, that the Sermon on the Mount is at pains to show us how to live differently, okay? It shows how to live differently here at Davidson in America on this planet, Earth, okay? But with Jesus and with spiritual imagination. So basically, the Sermon on the Mount is trying to show us how to live differently with Jesus and with spiritual imagination. Okay? Yet, to see and to live differently, I think we've got to investigate two fundamental questions which are on your handout. Okay? The first question is, what is the central message of the Sermon on the Mount? And I'm gonna, we're going to find two theologically loaded answers that I will promise you I will soon define, just like I promise you I'll continue to define spiritual imagination, if you're kind of totally confused by that. Okay? First, the first answer is the kingdom of God is what it's centrally about. And we see that in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And the second answer is God's grace. And we see that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Okay? 
And then the second question in sequence that we need to ask is, who is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount? And we find here in chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, the authoritative person of Jesus. That's who's at the center. Okay, the authoritative person of Jesus in Nazareth. So look, as usual, that's all in your handout. And we're going to begin with the beginning. Okay, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, and the central message of God's kingdom. Okay, so look there with me if you've got it um, on your handout there or in a Bible or whatever else. Okay. So, look, this is just a big old summary of Jesus' early public ministry, these verses 23 through 25, in the northern part, his public ministry in the northern part of what is modern-day Israel. Okay? The Decapolis is about 10 different cities. They're mostly ruled by non-Jews, but have a large Jewish minority population, including Galilee as a town. Okay? And here we're told um, how Jesus got famous. This is Jesus collecting a crowd. This is him getting famous, people following him for all over the known world, okay? And this is what he's doing. This is why he's famous. Verse 23, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That is Jesus' words, his teaching and preaching, words like the Sermon on the Mount that we'll study this semester, and Jesus' deeds, his healings, are showing everyone what the kingdom of God is all about, okay? And this glimpse into how the kingdom of God works, into its nature, is so compelling, so extremely compelling, that large groups of people follow him around in places they're not from. He's got a whole community of people that are tracking him down, okay? Like ancient stalking, I don't know. Like it's just a John Amass scale. But here's my question, why? We take this stuff for granted. Why are all these people following Jesus, right? What else, don't they have better things to do? What was so compelling about Jesus' announcement of himself as the king of the kingdom of Israel and beyond? Why is that so compelling that he crowns himself? I mean, look, for individualist Americas, kingship is at, at best unnecessary. <laughs> We've got this thing called democracy, Jesus. I got it, right? And at worst, I feel like for us, kingship is actually revolting. It's revolting, right? George Washington, all those many years ago, fought so hard so we would never have to deal with kings again. Okay, so why aren't we honoring his memory and why are we talking about kings? But look, Jesus is no ordinary human king. And I just want you to look at how he's healing people. Okay, and that's a huge clue to why people are following him around. You see, Jesus isn't just healing people because he knows free emergency care draws a crowd, right? That's not his object. Each healing functions like a sign or a billboard that points to what Jesus' kingdom is all about. Just like the book of Judges, right, when we talked about earlier, that chronicled all the horrific wrongs done without a king and made the case that a king is needed who can right wrongs and who can frustrate human evil, here we've got the existence of various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, verse 24. Uh, side note, notice he, he differentiates between people being possessed by demons and epilepsy. There's an understanding in the Bible of medical science, just FYI. Okay, moving on. Okay, there's, there's, there's a case being made here for a king, a king who can heal all of our diseases all of our sorrows, and all of our sufferings, both now and especially forevermore. That's the case that's being made. 
Okay? And so Jesus, often while he's healing people, is saying essentially, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. The kingdom of heaven was a Jewish first century way of, being, of revering the name of God and saying the kingdom of God. So he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near or at hand. Okay? So according to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is calling them and us to change our plans. That is repent, right? And opt into coming and living with him in and under his very presence. That's what he's up to. Because the kingdom of God isn't a place. This is what's so interesting. We always think it's a place. The kingdom of God isn't some quarantined, sanitized, decriminalized zone. Okay? The kingdom of God is being with God. It's knowing and being known by Jesus. Jesus, who's the second person of the Trinity. God become man to dwell with us. Okay? But perhaps you're starting to see how abstract and hard to grasp this idea of the kingdom still is. Okay, I'm doing my best to explain it, but it's still very complicated, isn't it? Okay, and then, you're, and then Jesus is asking them and us to live in this thing. Right? And it's not a nation state. And it's not necessarily physical. Okay, at least primarily. And it requires this, again, spiritual imagination to step into and to live within the kingdom that Jesus is describing in his sermons and he's acting out with his miracle healings. Okay? So, like, there's sporadic miracles going on, but for the most part, the kingdom of God was and is more spiritual than physical. It's often very hard to see, it's very hard to feel, and it oftentimes is counterintuitive. Do you kind of get all this so far? So Jesus is saying and doing something about the kingdom that is so new and so different, it is still extremely hard to take in. It's a new insight that's at odds with the way that we process information. Our customary methods of thinking and seeing, um, this is like new wineskin bursting old wineskins, or new wine bursting old wineskins is the metaphor that Jesus uses, okay? But I'm gonna get way more concrete because this is not that helpful. Okay, so here we go, ready? According to Robert Frarkabin, Jesus', Jesus first century Jewish audience, the Syrian Jewish audience, expected the king of the kingdom of God. Here's what they expected. They expected him to be victorious and immortal, okay? And they expected him to arrive in on horseback, and to punch the enemies of the Lord in the nose, right? Just whack, you're done. There you go, Caesar. Take your bloody nose and get back to Rome, right? That's sort of what they expected. Instead, they got a poor, shabby, sandaled man who suffered and died relatively easily. He didn't put up much of a fight, okay? And then there's the disconcerting way that Jesus' kingdom actually works. Its economy and its ethic are just totally disconcerting. Look, in, whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, the way that the kingdom of God works uh, is totally unexpected. We expect the kingdom to run on someone giving us good advice and good rules. And then we expect that we will go ahead and try to keep these well-advised rules. And then there will be something like a meritocracy, where the people who keep the rules the best will be on the top, and the people who keep the rules the worst will be on the bottom. And everyone will be happy because it's all just and deserved. No. <laughs> That's not how the kingdom of God works. And the word, in the words of, of Capon, in the kingdom of God, we expect that grace is just a mere one or two shot sending back a remission of guilt. 
The chief purpose is like a mulligan in golf, right? It's just to suspend the rules for a while and give a second chance to people who now, having run out of chances, had best get back to the business that God had in mind for them, right? Namely, watching their step. We're striving all our life to see ourselves as keeper of the rules that we cannot keep. As loyal subjects of laws under which we will only be judged outlaws. Yet so deep is our need to derive our identity from our own self-respect that we will spend a lifetime trying to do the impossible rather than even for one carefree minute consent to having it done for us by someone else named Jesus. Do you get that? Instead, to quote Capon again, the, God's king, the kingdom of God's economy tells us we need more than an occasional suspension of the rules. We need grace. And grace is not the offer of an exception to the rules. It's a totally different thing. It's a new thing entirely. Grace simply says, because of our weakness, the rules can never be the basis of our acceptance. And so God is not going to make the rules the basis of our acceptance anymore. Like, I get that's a lot of take, to take in, but can we get, begin to apply just a little bit to life at Davidson? We're going to do this a lot more over the course of the semester. But think about it this way. What if our social performances didn't determine our lovability? What if our academic failures didn't necessarily destroy our future? What if self-respect came from resting in Jesus' work for us, not how someone else played in the game when we didn't, or how someone else spent Friday night or even Sunday morning? Even though those things are true, they're so hard to believe. Okay? It takes a lot of spiritual imagination, a different kind of vision to start believing that the world fundamentally operates differently. That we're under a kingdom of God and a king who does not privilege the same things or expect the same things that we expect. But hopefully these questions and a couple of those quotations can help us to start to think through what the kingdom of God and living in the kingdom of God looks like. Okay? And really this grace is at the heart of God's kingdom and another focal point of the Sermon on the Mount, right? From its very beginning, chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount centers on the concept of grace. Okay, I've already gotten ahead of myself, of course, which is really helpful, because just look with me at verses 1 through 3. Look, the first two verses, Jesus is just kind of saying, he's sitting down, which I'm standing up. Imagine if I sat down and spoke to you. That's what they would do in the first century, and you guys could all go crisscross applesauce at my feet, and that would be the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and that, except I'm not Jesus. Big, big if. Um, but... <laughs> Big except. Um, but the first two verses, he sits down like a Jewish teacher at the time, and he teaches his disciples. And we see that the Sermon on the Mount's primary audience is for these disciples, for people who follow Jesus, who are students of Jesus, those who fitfully try to, try to draw near to him and be with him. That's what a disciple is, okay? Fitfully trying to draw near and be with him, okay? And then in verse 3, we read that Jesus' first teaching to them and many other people is this. Um, many of us that are trying to do likewise is this. This is his first teaching, very first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of theirs is the kingdom of God. 
We're going to talk a lot more about the verse, this verse and the verses following and next week. But I want to, again, for you to notice how hard it is to actually take this teaching as Jesus said it. I, I almost can guarantee we're taking it in a different way. Okay? If you're anything like me, I automatically translate this into a self-improvement project, a self-actualization exercise, okay? An if-then clause, right? Here we go. If I will be poor in spirit, then I shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus also isn't saying blessed or happy will be the poor in spirit, okay? Jesus also isn't saying the poor in spirit must be blessed and happy, Jesus is speaking grace at us. And he's saying, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. Are, not will be, not must be. They already are. He's telling those who want to be near him and those who are, that those people who want to be right, to be near him, that they're right where they need to be. They're right as they ought to be. Right as they are. They are wonderfully welcomed. In fact, right here, right now, you get to be part of, you get to have an ownership stake in the kingdom of God just by showing up. You're it as you are. That's crazy. We expect something more to do, like external behaviors, something else to to do. And God gives us an acceptance that transforms us from the inside out. In the words of N.T. Wright, these blessings, the wonderful news he's announcing, are not saying try hard to live like this. They are saying people, like the disciples, are in good shape. They should be happy and they should celebrate. It is gospel. It is good news. It is not good advice. Of course, this world, of course, our lives are not the way they should be. I get it. Let's celebrate the fact that people are getting persecuted, that people are hurting and suffering. I get it. That's hard. But Jesus has promised, and part of us waiting on this and in this posture is waiting for his promise to transform us and this planet to heal and to rule everything, and that we get to be a part of that mission. Okay? But, like, it's so hard to practice this spiritual imagination. Like, to, to actually sit there and say, we are blessed. You are validated. I am favored right now in this life, out in that world over there, outside these doors. Okay? Why is that so hard? I, here's, my, here's my idea. Okay? I think the movie Lady Bird, again, picks up uh, brilliantly on this idea. It picks up this desire that we all have for this news to be true about us, but also what you, many of you are feeling right now. <laughs> There's so many of us have had so many personal experiences that seem to deflate this desire. Christine, aka Ladybird, is shopping for a prom dress, okay, with her mom, Marion. And Ladybird comes out of the changing room wearing a very pink dress. Okay, and here's the scene. Okay, Ladybird says, I love it. Her mom scrunches up her face and says, Is it too pink? Ladybird turns on her heel, goes back into the changing room, and slams the door. From behind the changing room door, Lady Bird asks, Why can't you say I look nice? And her mom, Marion, replies, I thought you didn't even care what I thought. Lady Bird quickly says, I still want you to think I look good. 
Marion, the mom, takes a deep breath and says, okay, I'm sorry. I was telling you the truth. You want me to lie? <laughs> Ladies, Lady Bird's move, voice moves from angry to hurt to vulnerable. She says, she says behind the closed changing door, this line. No, I mean, I just wish, I just wish, I wish that you liked me. Her mom, Marion, immediately replies with a kind of practiced, hushed mom tone. Of course I love you. Then Lady Bird comes out of the dressing room, faces her mother, sincerely asks, but do you like me? There's this long, horribly long pause in the movie. And then the mom, Marion, says, I want you to be the very best version of yourself that you could be. To this, Lady Bird asks, what if this is the best version? As in, can you like me like this as I am? Do you even want to be around me? But the mother is so terrified of Lady Bird not growing that she's so afraid to say you're good just as you are because she's so afraid that she won't continue to grow up and mature and get better. So in her mom's silence, Lady Bird turns back around and slams the changing room door again. And then there's a scene where the mom looks at the changing room door, takes two hesitant steps forward, reaches out her hand, then turns back and says nothing. It's the end of the scene. Perhaps this is how a friend or a parent or a coach or a favorite professor is with you. Or perhaps they say all the right things, but you don't believe them. You think he or she says the same thing to everyone and lacks credibility. Or they say overly optimistic things about everything and they lack authority. Or you're just terrified you won't continue to grow and so you don't want to believe it. And so maybe right now you're not believing me. Huh, that makes sense, right? You think I lack cre credibility or authority. Fair enough. I do. Okay? Or maybe you're not believing Jesus. You think that Jesus lacks credibility or authority. But this is where chapter 7 verses 28 through 29 push back on you. They push back on Jesus' credibility and authenticity and authority. Okay? They do this by highlighting the centrality of Jesus' personal authority in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Look, if we trust these verses at all, if we read them as a plain sense meaning, verses 28 through 29, make a clear case. Verse 28, the crowd who's there firsthand, seeing the action, hearing the speech to the disciples, overhearing it on purpose, um, they hear what Jesus says to them, two chapters of it, and what's their first reaction? They're astonished. In the Greek, original Greek language that this book was written in, the word is even more... Um, strong. It's not astonished, it's dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. Okay? Matthew explains in verse 29 that Jesus isn't quoting or he isn't making citations of other scholars or even scripture. He's legislating. He's speaking, this, uh, he's speaking scripture as God. Let's speak scripture. And the crowd's response to these verses it causes John Stott, a scholar, to write this. The main question becomes, this main question of the sermon forces upon us is not so much what do you make of this teaching, okay? 
It's much more, who on earth is this teacher? This was certainly the reaction of those who heard the sermon preached firsthand. Okay? Really, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but also the kingdom of God, God's grace, and all of Christianity come down to what you and I think of Jesus. Okay? You see, Jesus doesn't primarily offer us instructions. He primarily offers himself. Christianity is not just do this good advice to get to God or follow these rules for heaven. It's this. Jesus, God incarnate, took the advice you couldn't and followed the rules you wouldn't. Also, he had come down and find you and die on a cross to give his life for you, all just to be with you. That's dumbfounding authority. You see, Christianity primarily offers a teacher, not a teaching. Someone to rest in more versus something more to achieve. So when you want to change your name and when you want to go far, far away, or when you're trying on clothing for a dance and you feel so, so close to childhood, it feels awkward. Okay? I want you to see and I want you to hear what God the Father in all of his authority over heaven and on earth does about you in Jesus. Okay? He tenderly but firmly grabs your shoulder right before you slam the changing room door shut. He looks you in the face, and then he looks you all the way, top to bottom, bottom to top. From chipped toenail polish to frizzy bangs. From callous toe pad to puffy, tired eyes. He takes it all in. And then he says before you can ask, you know what? I like you. Just like you are. Just as you are. Even right now, even right then. And no, you don't have to go it alone anymore. And yes, my love for you will transform you into the best version of yourself that you can be. My love makes people the person they were created to be. That's what's at stake. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. And I hope that as we jump into it more, we get to wrestle with that more. And maybe with their parents less. Did you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time. Thanks for the opportunity to, to be with these students again. And, and I just pray that you would press true what needs to be pressed true and uh, let go what needs to be let go. And uh, I thank you for their attention. And just uh, I pray that, um, that there be some things to, to take away and to think about and to pray about and to, and to hold fast. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.